This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works or others in the publishing industry about trends and books they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Thoughts from a Page. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring the next six months of my podcast. Today, I am interviewing S.C. Perkins about fatal family ties. She is a fifth-generation Texan who grew up hearing fascinating stories of her ancestry in eating lots of great Tex-Mex. She resides in Houston, and when she's not writing or working at her day job, she's likely outside in the sun, on the beach, or riding horses. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Stephanie. How are you today? I am well. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here again. I know. It's so much fun to now be going round two with a number of authors. It's really hard to believe it's been a year and it's time to be talking to people again. I know. I know. I'm just, this is just so much fun to be on your podcast. So thank you so much again for having me. Absolutely. Well, I really enjoyed reading Fatal Family Ties, and I thought it was so much fun to see Houston in there repeatedly. But for those that haven't read it yet, why don't you give us a quick summary? Well, this is the third book in my Ancestry Detective mystery series. And Lucy, who is my professional genealogist character, she is recruited sort of almost against her will by a former co-worker to look into a magazine article that uh, that talks about her former co-worker's ancestor who was in the Civil War and claimed that he was lying about his Civil War service. And uh, Lucy at first doesn't really want to get involved, but but she does. And then she gets involved with her her client's family and that sends her into Houston. And there's a piece of artwork involved. It's a triptych painting. And they go to Houston and back in, in an attempt to solve this mystery that involves three branches of her client's family and a three-paneled painting. A lot of fun to research and a lot of fun to, to write. So I really enjoyed it. Well, that's my next question is your research. You must have had to do a fair amount of research. Do you want to talk about that? I did, yes. So what I found out was that Civil War research is um, almost a mystery in and of itself because researching your Civil War ancestor's service, uh, there's lots of puzzle pieces to it. And there was lots of shoddy record keeping at the time. Some of the records were lost and whatnot. So it's not as easy as just saying, hey, I have an ancestor who was in the Civil War. Even you know, if you have a picture of him in a Civil War uniform, doesn't necessarily mean that he was there or that he fought or something like that. You know, or if he was in a particular regiment or whatnot, he might not have fought in a particular battle. It's it's a really a mystery in and of itself. And so I found that to be really, really fascinating. 
And then I've always been a little bit of a closeted art geek, and I've always thought triptych paintings were really beautiful. And those are three paneled paintings. And I read about one, and I believe it was a Dick Francis book that was years and years ago. And I thought, someday I'm going to put a triptych painting in a novel. And uh, and so I did. So whenever I kind of had the idea to bring in a, a second mystery into the book, as well as the genealogy aspect of it, the triptych painting just it just came into my brain and I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. And I got to interview some some art experts, one of which is a friend of mine. And so it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to research. And I found out so many interesting things. The Civil War aspects were completely fascinating to me. The idea that, like you said, you could have a relative in a Civil War uniform, but that doesn't necessarily mean he fought at a particular battle or was you know in a particular location at one point. And then they how difficult it was to track all of that down and to be able to trace to a certain battle or a certain time. That's just kind of mind boggling today with all of the record keeping that happens. But you've got to think it was obviously the 1860s and there was a lot happening and everything was just paper recorded. But it was interesting what links you had to go to to be able to verify something. Yes, it it really was very interesting. And there there is... Uh, one list called the Bowie list. And that was, is really the only uh, list of soldiers that I'm aware of to where you can actually prove if your ancestor's name was on the Bowie list, that your ancestor fought in a particular battle. And that was because these soldiers that when they died on the field, um, and I believe it was, they were in Maryland and one of the battles was Antietam and there was a couple of other battles. And that there was actually a group who went around and recorded all the names of the soldiers who died there. So that is the only time that you can actually prove easily that your ancestor was there is if they're on the Bowie list. But otherwise, for instance, like muster roll calls were only taken every two months. And sometimes these soldiers, if they were wounded in a battle... And then they were left behind because they couldn't keep up and they couldn't get to, you know, an aid station or whatever, or the hospital, Um, then they might be listed as dead or deserted. And then two months later, they would pop back up and be with their regiment again. And so it was just very, it was all these, you know, different record keepings and whatnot. And then there was the War Department created what's called a compiled military service records or CMSRs, and that um, they used only the information that they had and recreated these uh, sort of muster roll calls and, you know, and hospital admittances and whatnot. And those situations will give you an idea of where your soldier was. You know, you still have to be sort of wary as to whether or not they were actually there at the time or whether even if they might have been in a particular area, they might not have fought in a particular battle. So it just becomes this huge puzzle. And, you know, and there's just very, very few times that you can be absolutely sure that your ancestor fought in a particular battle. So I thought that that would be a fun situation to bring into the book. And it was just a mystery in and of itself. And I loved that. And I loved that the idea that came to me, my initial jumping off point. And then I thought, wow, this would make a great mystery. And then when I really started researching how to research Civil War military service, it truly did become how this big old mystery and whatnot. So it was definitely a lot of fun to write. I and and I learned so much. It was great. 
Was it hard to piece it all together? It it was. Um, I did kind of have to sort of shift puzzle pieces around a little bit, and especially because I'm a pantser and I sort of, you know, sort of write as I go along and whatnot. And then I have to go back through and there are certain parts that I have to weave in or weave back together and make sure that if there is an element that's missing that would tie something together or make it clear then I had to go back and do that. And I, it, there was one place that I, that I did have to go back and do that and kind of tear it apart a little bit and weave it back in together. But otherwise, I did my research fairly well. And I do have a genealogist who goes back and reads my, um, my books for me and everything. And she'll point out where I have inconsistencies and, uh, and give me other information to use. So I did, I did a pretty good job, but I, there were a couple of parts that I did have to weave back in some information to make it clearer. I could see where that would be very hard, but it sounds like that you did all of your work ahead of time, so then it really wasn't as bad as it could have been. That That's true. And, you know, and again, like I said, with, uh, since I have a genealogist who will go back through my information, that was really, really helpful <laughs> because she's very good at what she does. And she, like, she pointed me toward the Bowie list. That was one that I actually missed and everything. And then I got to research it because of her. Oh, that's very cool. Well, writing a story set in Texas means your Civil War soldier would have been a Confederate soldier. Mm -hmm. Honoring Confederate soldiers and statues, schools named after them, all of that is a really fraught topic today. How did you navigate that? Well, it was was difficult, especially um, writing during the pandemic and during all the horrible things that happened to, to George Floyd and others. So it, it was definitely something that I thought of, and I did consider uh, bringing more of that into it. I did actually write uh, a one chapter that dealt with sort of Lucy's idea of the Civil War and what, you know, how she felt about being a genealogist and having to research, you know, deeply into the Civil War. But in the end, I felt that it didn't serve the mystery any better. And so I did end up taking that out. But it was important to me to write, you know, Lucy as someone who's an educator and that it is sort of her job to see all sides of things and to um, the good and the bad and especially the bad and learn how to uh, explain them to others and teach people to maybe open their eyes a little bit more. But I did learn a lot and I actually did have a, um, it's now called an authenticity reader a while back you could also hear him called sensitivity readers. And, um, and so I had this wonderful woman read my book and she was very kind in the end. There was a couple of places where she pointed out where I definitely needed my eyes opened to things. And I did shift around a couple of things, but all in all, I did an okay job. I think that she would say, and, um, and then especially she actually read it when I did have that other chapter in and, and she, felt that it wasn't needed as well. And I had already made that decision before I got her notes back, luckily, and everything. It was a little difficult. I had the idea for this book back in 2013. And so it's been in my mind for so long. So it did cause me some stress, but I was really, really happy with the way that it turned out. Well, first, I want to say I thought you handled it all very well. There were certain parts of the story where it really did stand out to me. And I thought Stephanie has thought through this. I was curious if you had an authenticity reader. I figured you probably did at this stage of the game with just, you know, everything that's happened. But I do think, you know, it's it's a fine line because you you do need to learn about history and you you know, the whole history repeats itself. If you don't learn the bad stuff, then it sometimes isn't possible to prevent it again. 
but you also don't want to honor some of those horrible things. And I thought you walked that line perfectly. I was just curious if it had caused you any stress because I figured it probably had. It, it, it definitely did. And thank you. I'm so glad that it reads well because it was really important to me to not you know, show that you can, like I've said in the book, that you can be proud to be from the South, but not be proud of the Civil War and, and the South's past in it. I, I had to read the South's reasons for secession, for reasons for wanting to secede from the nation. Oh my God. I mean, they're just beyond horrible. And I mean, I felt sick to my stomach for days and I don't really remember. I mean, I was in high school in the eighties and I don't remember whether we actually read those or not. Uh, I remember hearing about the lost cause and there are so many things that, you know, my eyes have been opened a lot more in, from what I learned as a child. Although I will full on say that and none of my teachers ever glorified the South or ever glorified the South's reasons for wanting to be in the Civil War. But they were, there were certain things that we didn't learn about as much as we should have. And so I, I learned a lot and uh, it was very, very, very eye-opening for me. And I'm very glad that I did it. And I'm very glad that I learned all of that stuff. And to have it have happened now and everything was even more meaningful to me, even if nobody else cares, because it was it was important in my own learning. That's so interesting that you say that, because I do feel like it's eye-opening as we're you know learning some of these things and the way the Civil War has been glorified and how things have been sort of glossed over under some other guise of it sounding like it was you know for other people's benefits, but instead it was just to straight up support these horrible policies. But I interviewed an author, Ty Sejuli, in January, I think, and his book is called Robert E. Lee and Me. He's a Washington and Lee grad, and then he taught at West Point. And so he, later in life, goes back and reevaluates his education at Washington and Lee and then the West Point and kind of the policies that they teach. And it was just fascinating. He grew up in Virginia, and so with the myth, myth of the lost cause and Robert E. Lee, and it's a fascinating read. And it was really interesting to hear him speak about it, too. And you just don't realize how many things have been reframed so that they're made to sound positive when instead the whole reason they were put in place was to keep other people down. It's, it's horrifying, but it's also sort of amazing to me that it's been able to happen and not amazing in a good way, but, you know, it's just sort of mind boggling. I completely agree. And I just saw that book, Robert E. Lee and Me, I think about a week ago. And I thought, ooh, I need to pick that up. And so I didn't know that you had interviewed him. I somehow missed that one. So um, so I need to listen to that. I bet it's, but it was fascinating. So it really, really was an, an eye-opening experience for me to to do all my research. So his episode is my most listened to episode. And it's the one that I get the most feedback about from people saying they learned so much and it really resonated with me, or they have a relative that it was giving them good fodder to kind of talk back to and, you know, give their own side of an argument when they felt strongly about you know, the Confederacy and why there were problems. So it was, it was really interesting. I learned so much. I can imagine. Well, you know me in covers. So I love the cover and I love how your covers tie in together. Let's talk a little bit about how your cover came about and your fun title, because I know you have a list of titles that you keep ready to go, and then you just end up using it once you have a book written. So tell us a little bit about how you settled on Fatal Family Ties and then about your cool cover. 
Well, I when I realized that I was going to be writing about a character and then three branches of her family, I thought, oh, family's got to be in there somewhere. And so, and and uh, with cozy mysteries, you often, you know, you'll see the alliteration or the puns and everything, which I think are so much fun. And so, I chose that one. And there was a couple of them, and my my agent sort of helped me whittle it down. But uh, that was Fatal Family Ties is what we landed on, and then the. Uh, artist at Minotaur, his name is David Rothstein, and he's just amazing. And uh, and he came up with the with the cover, and I explained about the that there was going to be a triptych painting, and there was going to be you know it was going to be a battle scene and everything in the Civil War. So, and the paintings that are in the tree on my cover are not what the actual battle scene looks like. It's just sort of a depiction so that whenever you see it, you'll just automatically think civil civil war. And, uh, but I just absolutely loved it. They, you know, they just sort of did like a dark and moody theme. And then since it was springtime, um, I asked if they would put in blue bonnets. And so you'll see some blue bonnets down at the bottom and I actually sent them a photograph. My my parents owned a place out in Burton, Texas, which is so pretty. Um, and I have this photograph that I use actually on my lock screen on my phone of of the field of blue bonnets from their place. And and that's where that picture came from. So they basically copied that. And then of course the cat, whose name is NPH for Neil Patrick House Cat, and he shows <laughs> up again. So um, so of course they had to put NPH back on there. And they just did a wonderful job. I mean, oh my gosh, Minotaur, his, the artist is just amazing. So I just love it. Just absolutely delighted with it. I love the way the branches weave through the title. Yes. Ab- yeah, absolutely. It's just everything about it. I just, I just love it. I just find myself staring at it and everything. And there's stars twinkling through there. And uh, I just think it's beautiful. It's very well done. So I always enjoy talking with you about your covers because they're, they're complicated in a good way. You know, there's really a lot happening in your covers and you have to really focus on it for a little bit to see it all, which is the best kind of cover. Yes, absolutely. Well, do you have a favorite secondary character that you've written in these books? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think it, you know, it changes with with each book. And my my first one it would definitely be Flacco, who is the Taqueria owner, and he's still one of my favorites to write. He's just awesome. And then in book two, it would have been Grandpa, who is Lucy's grandfather, and uh, he was a former World War II spy, and he was just so much fun to write. And uh, in this one, I, gosh, I mean, I had so much fun with with a lot of them. And I I loved writing Ben in this one. I got to see sort of a different side of Lucy's new boyfriend. And then also... I really enjoyed writing the character of Camilla, who was Lucy's former co-worker. And they didn't, you know, she didn't exactly have the best working experience with Camilla and, uh, and her two other former co-workers. That came about because I felt like in the first two books that it almost seemed like Lucy just had just the perfect life. And I wanted to show that she had other things going on in her background and just like anyone else and that she did not have, you know, this perfect situation. She wasn't beloved by everyone. And I wanted to show what, you know, I wanted to show her in a situation where she had to sort of overcome an adversity. And I wanted to show how uh, she has grown. I also wanted to show um, how she herself 
has to change her mind and has to re sort of redesign her manner of thinking about someone that she used to know. There was a lot of these little things that sort of came up. And of course, like I said, I'm a a pantser, so I didn't really realize them until later that um, these little things sort of, and to me, it's sort of a theme of second chances sort of came up and how Lucy was willing to give these people second chances. And you'll have to read whether some of them work out and some of them don't, or they all work out or you never know. But but that to me was fascinating. And so I really enjoyed writing Camilla. Um, she was, I thought, a, a little bit more difficult character. And but she was really fun to write. And I, I liked the way that things ended up with her. I did too. I really liked the way their relationship progressed. Mm-hmm. Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked? Oh, goodness. I've read a lot of good things. Uh, one was a, a, a new one from Ashley Weaver called A Peculiar Combination. Um, it's a World War II set mystery uh, featuring a you know safe cracker, which was a lot of fun. And then there was one that I read for a blog piece that I wrote. It was one of several books, and it's called The Firekeeper's Daughter. And it is by Angeline Boulay or Bouley, B-O-U-L-L-E-Y. And it's uh it's set in Michigan and it's dealing it's a young adult technically, but um I think it reads for anyone. And uh it's surrounding uh, uh a woman who is uh half indigenous people. She's part of the Chippewa nation and sort of, she's kind of having to, uh, to see both sides of her family and, um, and she helps the FBI using her indigenous medicine. And it's really interesting. Um, and I love romances too. And, uh, Evie Dunmore's A Rogue of One's Own. It's a second in her, I think they're called, uh, oh, I can't remember the title, uh, what they're called. Like they're- I know now I'm blanking too, because I definitely know the series you're talking about. Oh, it's called The League of Extraordinary Women. That's right. Yes. And that one is so much fun. And I'm about to start the Wisteria Society of Lady Scoundrels by India Holton. And that's a debut and it just looks like it's so much fun. So I've been, I've, I've had a lot of stuff. And, oh, and May Cobb's The Hunting Wives. I haven't started it yet, but I'm really looking forward to that. And she's a fellow Texan. She is. She's wonderful. I have not met her, but I have heard that she is so much fun. And I have the Firekeeper's Daughter. It keeps being recommended to me, and I have got to move it up the list because everybody just keeps raving about it. Uh, you know, it's I've, I found it the writing just to be wonderful, and, and she just did a, a really great job. So it's a great story, too. Those are all great recommendations. And like I said, I'm going to get to the Firekeeper's Daughter sooner rather than later, and the others all sound wonderful. Well, I'm so glad that you could join me again on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. It was, as always, wonderful to speak with you. Oh, it was just so great to be here. Thank you so much again. This was just an absolute blast as usual. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, 
That's a hard no about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.